good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning and uh, to share with you from God's Word. Uh, it was a lovely weekend looking at uh, the topic of Reformation worship uh, as we did this past weekend. This morning we're going to look at the suffering servant of Isaiah. And our first reading is not in Isaiah, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 to 31. Let us hear the word of our God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our second reading is from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, actually Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 52, uh, verse 13. And we'll read to chapter 53, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Let us hear the word of the Lord again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, 
they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The flowers fade and the grass withers, but the word of our God endures forever. Let me pray for us as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father, in your light, we see light. And so we pray that you would come now and illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. And we ask this in his name who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. One of the earliest pictorial presentations of Jesus is a piece of graffiti from the third century AD. The graffiti depicts a young man worshipping a donkey-headed figure on a cross. 
Under the picture, there is the inscription, Alexa Menos worships his God. The graffiti was obviously meant to mock a Christian named Alexa Menos for his faith in the crucified Christ. It's how the world then and now often thinks of the Christian faith as a bit of a joke, worshipping a despised Jew on a cross. I mean, what a farce. In the ancient world, crucifixion was the vilest form of death. Roman citizens were not even allowed to use the word on their lips. It was a curse word. The cross spoke of guilt and shame, of defeat and death, hardly things that reasonable, educated people would boast about. And yet Christians in the ancient world did just that. They boasted in the crucified Christ. At the center of Christianity was a Christ on a cross, and that was their glory, which made their faith sound rather preposterous, hence the kind of graffiti in the third century. Alexamenos worships his God, with him bowing down to this donkey-headed figure on a cross. It was an attempt to highlight the foolishness of Christianity, the stupidity of the whole religion. And yet for Christians then and now, the image of the crucified Christ is not foolishness. It's wisdom. It's not preposterous. It's wondrous. It's why Christians sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. What is foolishness to the world is wisdom to the Christian. It's the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians, like we read earlier. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things are not to bring to nothing the things that are. This is the enigma at the heart of the Christian gospel. What is foolishness to the world? A crucified Jew on a cross is wisdom to the Christian. It's the wisdom of God. And that was the lesson that Israel needed to learn as they prepared to be sent into exile under God's judgment in the book of Isaiah. They had to learn that the way God was going to rescue them out of exile from under his judgment was not exactly how they would have imagined. God was going to rescue them through a weak, pitiful, suffering servant. What would look foolishness to them would actually be the wisdom of God to save them. We hear about this servant in four songs in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, 49, 50, and then 52, 13 to 53, 12. The surprising thing about the servant in these four songs is that the more we hear about him, he becomes more enigmatic than impressive. In the first song in chapter 42, we see that he will bring justice to the nations. 
Yet he is described as not crying aloud or lifting up his voice in the streets. He's determined, yes, but he's also humble and quiet. So how is he going to bring justice to the nations? In the second song, chapter 49, he is named Israel, an embodiment of what the nation ought to be. And yet he seems to become despondent, even questioning whether he will labor in vain. And yet, despite his despondency, he continues to trust God for his cause and recompense. The talk of a cause and a recompense suggests he will face opposition. And then in verse 7, we see that that is true. He will be despised, abhorred by the nation, and a servant of rulers. So here's the mystery. Here's the enigma of this servant. He will be the arm of the Lord doing a great thing for God, bringing about a new exodus for God's people out of exile, and yet he will be a servant to foreign rulers. The third song progresses the enigma in chapter 50. He will be wise with his words. He will sustain the weary with a word. He himself will not be rebellious, but he will listen morning by morning to God's word. He will not be rebellious from his task. He will not turn back from it. All very good. And then we read in verse 6, he will give his back to those who strike him and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He will not hide his face from disgrace or spitting. And so the enigma grows. The servant is supposed to be the mighty, powerful arm of the Lord saving God's people through a new exodus out of exile, and yet, at the same time, he's going to be despised, beaten, spat upon, in a word, defeated. How can he be the arm of the Lord if he's going to be all of those things as well? The fourth servant song, chapter 52, verse 13 to 53, 12, does nothing to lessen the enigma. If anything, it only heightens it. The song begins with an enigmatic opening, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. The enigma is that the servant's success and exaltation, verse 13, are set in contrast to his intervening humiliation, verse 14. In one moment, verse 13, he is high and exalted like a king. In the next, he is more monster than man in his physical appearance because of the violence done to him. Yet this marred, mangled man will sprinkle the nations like a priest sprinkling blood on an altar to atone for people's sins. What's more, he will stun kings into silence. In the ancient world, kings were sieges of wisdom. Just think of Solomon, for example. Yet here kings will submit in silence to this disfigured man. Which brings us full circle back to his exaltation. If kings are submitting to him, if they are standing in silence before him, then he is exalted, not them. But therein lies the enigma. Do you see it? The one mangled will be the one magnified. The one humbled will be the one exalted. 
and his magnification, his exaltation will come not in spite of his suffering, but because of his suffering. Not in spite of his suffering, but because of his suffering, he will be magnified. He will be exalted. He will succeed through suffering. He will bring salvation through suffering. He will sprinkle the nations through suffering. He will stun kings into silence through his suffering in silence. In other words, the form and shape of this servant's ministry is suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And that's Isaiah chapter 53 in a nutshell. Chapter 52 verses 13 to 15 is like the overture of the servant's song for the whole of chapter 53. It's the whole chapter compressed into three verses. The servant will succeed in bringing salvation to the nations through his suffering, not his strength. Suffering, then glory. And yet his suffering will be called, in verse 1, the arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord. There's the enigma, which brings us to Isaiah chapter 53. The chapter is divided into four distinct stanzas. If you glance down in your English Bibles, you can see this with the way the words are spaced out on your page. Verses 1 to 3 is the first stanza. Verses 4 to 6 is the second. Verses 7 to 8, uh, 7 to 9 is the third. And verses 10 to 12 is the fourth. The first stanza, verses 1 to 3, and the third stanza, verses 7 to 9, give the fact of his suffering. The second stanza and the fourth stanza, verses 4 to 6 and verses 10 to 12, give us the significance of his suffering. So as we look at these stanzas, think about the fact of his suffering and the significance of his suffering. We see four things about this servant from these four stanzas. Number one, he was despised by us. He was despised by us, verses 1 to 3. The stanza opens with words spoken by a collective group of witnesses, the us in verse 1, and the we in verses 2 to 3. And when the us in verse 1, the proclaimers of the servant and his work, are connected to the we in verses 2 and 3, the despisers, the rejectors, it becomes apparent that a profound change occurs in these witnesses. At first, they are not attracted to the servant. Verse 2, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Then their disinterest turns to outright rejection. Verse 3, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But then they experience a little of that rejection in themselves through their own identification with him. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord being revealed. The questions are rhetorical, yet they carry an element of surprise given that this is the arm of the Lord that they are speaking about. The last time the arm of the Lord was flexed for God's people, the last time God flexed his biceps for his people was in Egypt. 
when he brought the plagues upon Pharaoh in Egypt, when he brought out Israel through the Red Sea with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. In those days, the nations saw it and shuddered. Even as far away as Jericho, they heard about it and a prostitute called Rahab believed. So why such a poor response this time when the arm of the Lord is revealed? Why do people not see the arm of the Lord revealed in this servant and shudder and tremble and believe? Well, the simple answer is that the arm of the Lord is veiled behind the servant's unattractive appearance and the people's rejection of him. However, the servant's life does not begin with rejection. He has a promising start. You see that in verse 2? He grows up before God like a tender plant, even though the environment of a dry ground is difficult for him. Indeed, while his background is one of poverty and obscurity, it is nevertheless one of royalty. Verse 2, the mention of the young plant and the root recalls chapter 11 of Isaiah, where Isaiah spoke of a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse and the root of Jesse, royal terms for a royal son. So why do people not believe the message about this royal son? Because there's nothing attractive about him. Verse 2, no beauty that we should desire him, which is a surprise given his royal heritage. As the shoot of Jesse, this servant was a direct descendant of David and Solomon. And we know that both men are described in the Bible as being ruddy and handsome. David, we are told, was a man of form, yet, his, yet this servant has no form. If you saw him in a crowd, you wouldn't take a second look at him. If you walked past him in the street, you wouldn't even notice him. It's not that he was necessarily ugly. It was just that he was so ordinary, you wouldn't give him a second glance Yet people did not just ignore him. They despised him and rejected him. Maybe it is after his face becomes marred beyond human semblance that he is despised, or maybe the marring is the result of his rejection. In either case, the fact is this despising, this rejection ultimately ends in his death. No wonder then that he is described in verse 3 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This doesn't mean that he was generally a sad man, but rather that he experienced in his life the debilitating effects of sin, not necessarily in his personal life, but socially in the world around him. He bore the burdens of humanity in his humanity. And as if that was not enough for one poor soul to carry, he experienced all of it alone. Verse 3. And as one from whom men hide their faces. The face in Hebrew thought spoke of favor, approval, acceptance, basic requirements for a human personality to grow and develop. Yet such things were not afforded this servant. Even from his own people, he was despised 
and we esteemed him not. And so we come full circle, the proclaimers of the servant who began this section with their testimony. They were first despisers of the servant. This is the first thing we see about this enigmatic servant, the fact of his rejection, the fact of his rejection. The one who would be high and lifted up was first despised by us. He was despised by us. Second, he was punished for us. He was despised by us, and he was punished for us, verses 4 to 6. This second stanza moves from the fact of his rejection to its significance. Faith, if you like, converts the facts into their significance. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's a surprise here when we connect this to verse 3. We despised him, yet he bore our griefs. We rejected him, yet he carried our sorrows. Not his own sorrows. He carried our sorrows. And verse 4 underlines the point that he did all of this while we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We were like Job's friends. No smoke without a fire. No punishment without a crime. He must have done something wrong to be smitten by God and afflicted like this. And yet now, with the eye of faith, we see things differently. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The language speaks of a violent death. Did you notice the words pierced, crushed, punishment, wounds? There are different kinds of violent death. Religious leaders have suffered violent deaths that set examples for their communities. Martyrs of a cause experience violent deaths that draw out sympathy from their followers. But this servant's death is neither. He dies to pay the penalty for the sins of his followers. He dies to bring them peace and healing. He does not die to win their sympathy. In short, his death is a penal substitutionary atonement. The penal part is captured by that language of pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. The substitutionary part is captured by that little word for. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the substitutionary nature is also seen in the pronouns he, him, his, they match our, we, us, exactly. Here is a servant who is doing something for us, in our place, as an exchange for what we owe. Verse 6 makes that clear. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the atoning nature 
of the servant's death. And yet this understanding creates some irony. We once thought the servant stricken and smitten and afflicted by God, and now we realize that he actually was. He actually was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, but just not for his own sin. Not for his own sin. It was for our sins, because all we like sheep, every one of us, has gone our own way. This is the second thing we see about the enigmatic servant, the significance of his penal substitutionary atonement. To the outward eye, he was simply a man despised by us. To the eye of faith, he was a man punished for us. He was despised by us. He was punished for us. And third, he was innocent, unlike us. Verses 7 to 9. He was innocent, unlike us. The servant's submissive innocence is seen in the image of a sheep going to the slaughter of a young lamb, going before its shearers. The image of the sheep carries over from verse 6. Only now this particular sheep is innocent. He does not go astray. He does not wander off. Instead, he submits himself to those who will slaughter him. And he does so in silence. Twice we're told that he does not open his mouth. And when he does open it, verse 9, there is no deceit found in it. Why the emphasis on the mouth? Well, because mouths reveal hearts. Out of the overflow of the mouth, of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah himself had learnt this in chapter 6, when he saw the holiness of God, he said, I am a sinful man. My lips are sinful, and I live among a people whose lips are sinful. Under the most intense pressure of oppression and injustice, this servant utters no angry protests, no words of revenge, no cries for justice, no deceit. His silence reveals his innocence. His muteness reveals his righteousness. Same with his actions. He does no violence. Even when they beat him, he does not turn his face away. Even when they disgrace him, spit on him, mock him, he does not hide his face. Instead, as the third servant song told us, he gives his back to those who strike him and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. The servant's silent restraint in the midst of such intense persecution establishes this basic fact, his innocence. His innocence. It's clear for all to see. It's clear for all to hear. Because he says nothing. However, the witnesses are not the ones to declare his innocence. The servant was innocent, yes, but not just before men. More importantly, he was innocent before God. And yet, from God's perspective, verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Here again is the penal substitutionary nature of this servant's death, but now from the divine perspective. The lamb without blemish, 
has become the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for sheep full of blemishes. This is also the enigma. To the unbelieving eye, he is guilty. He is like the sheep of verse 6, going astray, and thus he is buried in a grave with the wicked. He is numbered with the transgressors. He is buried with them in his death. And yet the Lord does not allow this blind, unbelieving perspective to be the last word. Yes, he goes into the grave, as do all the wicked in the plural here, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked, plural. But in his death, he was also associated with a rich man, singular. In the ancient world, to be buried in a rich man's grave was a symbol of honor. So we have a dilemma. Is he guilty or is he innocent? Buried with the wicked. Buried in a rich man's grave. Innocent or guilty? The final part of verse 9 gives us the answer. Yes, he was associated with the wicked in his death. But he also died with the honorable because he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the third thing we see about this enigmatic servant, the fact of his innocence seen in his silence. To the outward eye, he was simply a man despised by us. To the inward eye, he was a man punished for us, even though he was innocent, unlike us. These three truths about the servant, despised by us, punished for us, innocent unlike us, they build upon one another in this song, culminating in the theodicy question of the whole Bible. If this servant was despised by us and punished for us, yet was innocent unlike us, how could God, a God of justice, punish him? If he was despised by us, punished for us, yet was innocent unlike us, how can a good, just God punish him? That is the great theodicy question. Verse 6 says it, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How is that just? Well, the fourth stanza gives us the answer so that he might justify us, so that he might justify us, verses 10 to 12. This stanza doesn't immediately provide the answer to the dilemma of the justice of this servant's death. In fact, it begins by intensifying the question, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. That heightens the problem. We know already that the Lord brought the punishment upon the servant, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The question now is, how can he will to do it? How can he delight to do it? Well, the second part of verse 10 begins to move us toward an answer. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The will of the Lord at the end of verse 10 matches the will of the Lord at the beginning of verse 10. 
revealing that the Lord's delight in crushing his servant was not an end in itself. It was a means to another end. The posterity, the longevity, the prosperity of the servant and his people. This helps to solve the dilemma of the Lord delighting in crushing his servant. But it does not solve the dilemma of the unjust nature of that crushing. How can it be just for God to punish an innocent third party on behalf of a guilty party? Some have called this cosmic child abuse. And it would be if it was done against the servant's own will. But it was not. The servant voluntarily submitted himself to the crushing and so removed any problem of injustice. The will of the Lord to crush his innocent servant was in fact the servant's own will to be crushed for the sins of his people. The servant willed what God willed. This is already implied in verse 7 where we saw the silence and submission of the sheep before its shearers. This servant goes willingly to his death. So we see that the servant's will and the Lord's will go hand in hand as the servant makes his fatal journey into death, eliminating any problem of injustice. The Lord willingly crushed his servant and the servant willingly received it. This may appear something of a paradox, but there's no tension here. There's only harmony and mystery. But the question is, to what end was the Lord delighting in crushing the servant? In, to what end was the servant willing to be crushed by the Lord? For what purpose? Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What was the purpose of his death? The death of the one was for the justification of the many. This is why the servant could will such a death upon himself and why the Lord could delight in such a death upon the servant because of what the death would achieve, making many to be accounted righteous. And so we see the logic now of the whole song. The servant was despised by us. He was punished for us, even though he was innocent, unlike us, so that he might justify us. So that he might justify us. This was the end goal of the servant's suffering. His death would not be in vain. When his soul made an offering for guilt, he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. The will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he would see and be satisfied. The question is, when would he see? When would he see his offspring? When would he be satisfied with his work? Did God give him a glimpse before his death of the achievements that he would achieve after his death? Maybe. And yet mention of his prolonged days suggests that he would be a resurrected man, one who would die 
and then enjoy prolonged days. Indeed, he's portrayed as a victorious warrior after his death, dividing up the spoils of his bounty, verse 12, something he cannot do if he is dead. This is the final thing we see about this suffering servant. Although the Lord delighted to crush him, it was not the end of him. After death, there would be life. Yes, he would die, but he would justify many by his death as a resurrected, rewarded man. And so this servant song ends where it began, with the exaltation of the servant. In doing so, the song presents a certain movement to this servant's life from rejection to exaltation through suffering. From rejection to exaltation through suffering. Remember, this is the heart of the enigma surrounding this servant. He would succeed through suffering. Not in spite of suffering, but because of suffering. It would be suffering, then glory. Which raises the question for us this morning. So just who is this servant? Who is this servant? The secular answer, who cares? Who cares? What's it got to do with me? The liberal scholarly answer, an unidentified individual in the Old Testament, maybe Moses, maybe Job, maybe Jeremiah, maybe Isaiah, maybe second Isaiah. The Jewish answer, the Messiah who is yet to come. The Christian answer, Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows. One commentator put it beautifully, it looks as if this prophecy had been written beneath the cross upon Golgotha. And now, with hindsight, we hear the Father say to us this morning, Behold my servant Jesus. And by the grace of the Spirit's illuminating work, we see the wisdom of God. We see the salvation of the world. Some years ago, my nephew in Scotland, Sam, was playing with his friend from school, non-Christian friend, come over to the house. They were playing up in the bedroom. And at one point, they got onto the topic of church. And Sam was telling this boy that he goes to church. And the boy said to Sam, your God is dumb. My little nephew said, my God's not dumb. He's the savior of the world. What is foolishness to the world is wisdom to the Christian. It's the wisdom of God. And so we come this morning with Alexa Menos. And we bow and worship our God. The question is, have you seen Christ crucified for you? Or is he still an enigma? Is it foolishness to you that he hung on the cross for you? Have you believed the report? Have you seen the arm of the Lord in salvation revealed for you? 
If not, why not ask God this morning to open your eyes and not see this dumb figure on a cross, but instead see the Savior of the world. And if your eyes have been opened, then let's come and bow down and worship our God, just like Alexamenos did. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we would see Jesus this morning, and we thank you for opening our eyes to see him in this suffering servant. So we pray, Father, that you would expand our vistas of the precious Lord Jesus, and that we would indeed see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and now follow him more nearly. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen.